and a refuge from despair. I love Jesus, hallelujah. I love Jesus, yes I do, I do love Jesus. He's my Savior, Jesus smiles and loves me Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. We've mentioned this in recent sermons, so it should sound familiar. Be not ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. What does that that translate to? Don't be afraid. Don't hold back. Don't remain silent when you need to speak to share the gospel. When you're given opportunities, and they come more often than we want to acknowledge, to share the good news, we can't remain silent. 
when we are, we're being ashamed. We're allowing something other than our devotion to the Lord and His glory to come before us opening our mouths. Okay? First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Sanctify means to render Him holy. Acknowledge that He's holy. Hold Him as holy and pure in your heart. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. The way that you answer is with meekness and fear. But you are all, all commanded to be ready to give an answer. When any man, whether he agrees with your answer or not, be able to give an answer of the hope that's within you. What's the hope that you have? It's the gospel, right? It's the good news. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified and Him resurrected and a victorious Savior. You have a hope within you. If you don't have a hope within you, why are you sitting here? And so we need to be able to answer. To be ready always. He said, well, I'll, I'll invite you to church and you can let, let the preacher deal with that. He'll give the answer. It don't say that. It don't say be a good inviter to churcher. It says, be ready to answer. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear having a good conscience. So there is a way that we can give a good answer, and there's a manner that we can give a good answer when we have the opportunity, when somebody asks us, what is the reason for that hope that you have? And y'all, they should be able to see that we have hope. There should be something that prompts that question. If you look like the world and act like the world and talk like the world, what's going to be the prompt for somebody asking, well, what hope do you have? Because there's nothing different. Go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. Apostle Paul was very concerned about the Corinthian church. They were going to have false teachers come in among them and they were going to teach them something other than what they had been taught. And by doing so, he says, verse 3 says, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, his clever, subtle speech, so your minds might be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The simplicity. One aspect that means pureness. It's not, 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 it's not complex. We believe in a very simple gospel. We are not adding layers or requirements or regulations or anything else on top of what Christ has done. We believe in a victorious Savior. He did the work. He gets all the credit. It is a very simple doctrine. So, do not use the excuse to yourself, I'm not qualified to share the gospel. It's too big. It's too hard. Remember that wild Gadarean? How much training did he have from the Master right after he was healed? 
Remember, Jesus didn't stick around very long. The people, you know, their swines were destroyed, 2,000, you know, and everyone came to see what was up, and they said, go away. And the wild Gadarean had been put in his right mind. He had been crazy. He had been possessed by demons, right? No man could bind him. He was living out in the cemetery, naked. They tried to chain him and bust him out. Well, Jesus healed him, put him in his right mind. He tried to go with him when Jesus was leaving. What did Jesus say? He said, go back to your friends and your family and neighbors and tell them what great things God hath done for you. That's all the gospel is. You're telling what great things God has done for you. So if the wild Gadarene can obey, guess what? I can too. And this is one of those four finger print preaching. You know, we heard that one pointing at y'all and four back at me. Yeah. My personality is not one who I can go up to somebody in the hardware store, talk to him for 30 seconds, and suddenly we're talking about Jesus. My grandfather could do that. I've told the boys that. If I'd be going into Ace Hardware and he'd be walking down the aisle. And before, you know, we made it to the plumbing section, he's already got two or three people he's talked to and he's invited to church and they're talking about Jesus. It's just, it was a gift. I don't have that gift. I have to work at it. Um, but just because I don't have that innate ability doesn't mean that I'm not commanded to and that I am able to. Doesn't come equal, doesn't come easily. It's not the same as I can't do it. Okay? So we're, we're kind of dispatching with some of those excuses we build up in our head. Well, I'm not a preacher. Not my problem. <laughs> nope. Well, that's not my natural gift, so I don't have... It's all right. You may have to work at it a little harder. I do. Guess what? I'm painfully shy, and I don't like to be in front of people. <laughs> Lord will give you the grace he needs to do the job that he's called you to. So it's a the simplicity that is in Christ, right? The simplicity. And there's dangers in getting away from that simplicity. It's a, it's, it's, it's a form of bondage. If you look over in Galatians chapter 5, so just a couple of books away. Right? Galatians chapter 5, and the first four verses. He instructs this Galatian church. Now, Galatian church... Was in trouble. This was this was a stern letter because they had gotten off the mark really quickly. There were people who'd come in and said, "Well, Jesus is fine, but you need to do this or this or this or this too." Right? It's referred to as Judaizers. They were trying to bring back in aspects of the Old Testament law. So what he says here is, "Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage." By moving away from the simplicity of Christ, they were adding in layers of bondage onto themselves. And this particular bondage was adding in elements of the Old Testament law that had been that had been put away. The ceremonial worship, the circumcision. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. But I testify again to every man that is circumcised, he is debtor to do the whole law, and Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever you are justified by the law, you're fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. He says, you are getting away from the simplicity of Christ. The simplicity of that doctrine, of that truth. The grace that's there, and you're trying to make it about your own self-righteousness. about checking some other box. Okay? Because that is a bondage. Okay? Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, 
and the life, right? And then later in John chapter uh, 8, he would say, if you, if you continue in my word, you know, my disciples you'll be, um, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Right? What's the truth? Jesus himself, the simplicity that is Christ. He is liberating. Anything that we add to that or distort from that, preach another gospel, preach another Jesus, preach another spirit, anything else that we add to that is a form of bondage. Okay? Now, have you all ever tried to walk when your, your shoelaces are tied together? Does that work very well? No, right? It keeps tripping you up, right? Now imagine rather than shoelaces, you've got chains around your feet. You're going you're gonna to walk very well? You're going to run very well? No, you're going to keep what? Tripping and falling on your face. Right? All right, imagine you got chains around your arms, chains around your neck. Eventually, all those chains really start to wear you down. Try running a marathon. Right? That's what the, our race is. It's the Christian marathon, right? It doesn't end until you're dead, but... There are many of the Lord's children, His little sheep, little baby sheep who are trying to run their race after Jesus under the bondage of bad teaching, under the bondage of these bad doctrines, these movements away from the simplicity that is Christ. Okay? As Sister Sarah mentioned this morning, you cannot save any of them. And that's not your job, and we know that. But what you can do is show them that those chains don't have to be there. You don't have to be burdened by these false teachings. And that in knowing the truth, there is freedom. There is liberty. There is an ability to run your race with greater endurance, with greater patience, with greater stamina, because you're not hindered by these false teachings. So, as we consider the person that we may run into today, most people in this country, particularly in the Bible Belt, have heard the name of Jesus before. Okay? Is their concept of Him distorted? Pretty good odds. Most people in the Bible Belt still kind of go to church. But I would submit to you that our level of understanding of Scripture across our society is very low. <laughs> It's been my perspective, and this is just opinion, that among primitive Baptists, there tends to be teaching of more sound, strong, heavier meat in the sermons, and less fluff, less just motivational talks. There's more scripture, there's more things for you to chew on and grow on, and so among us, you'll tend to have a sounder base in your biblical knowledge than I would say the average church member somewhere else. And so, what I think you and I need to assume when we're interacting with someone is that we're interacting with someone who is very much a babe in Christ in their knowledge. Okay? There are words that we can use to describe in shorthand the things that we believe, and words that may have been actively taught against by whoever you're talking to at their church or at some point in their life. And those words can cause an emotional reaction 
Y'all ever have words that you just hear and it kind of makes your skin jerk? Things that you just immediately associate with, I don't like that. Some of the words that we use and describe to use shorthand to talk about very complex things can have that reaction. We need to be aware of that. We need to be aware that, um, well, first, let's be aware of our goal. Your goal in sharing the gospel is not to win an argument. Does everybody understand that? Your goal in sharing the gospel is not to win an argument. If you go into that, you will have a different attitude. Because when you go in to win an argument, what do you want to do? You want to win at whatever cost. I want to prove my point. Guess how many times you're going to win that argument? I've been in court cases where I listen to the other side, and technically he won, but he didn't convince me. I was just angry. That's not our goal. Your goal is to know that who you're talking to, you're one of the Lord's little sheep, that's bound down by the weight of this teaching that's, that's hindering them, that's hurting them, and that you want to help. They still may not believe you, but the manner that you go about it, that's your motivation. If I want the best for you, I care enough about you. And obviously this works better when you've got more of a relationship with somebody. It's hard to have that in passing through somebody at Walmart. But I care enough to share this truth with you. That's a very different perspective, right? It requires meekness and fear. Right? Fear, we want to glorify God and not make ourselves appear to be self-righteous or full of knowledge and humility. Of knowing that there's a time in our life when we didn't have it all figured out either. Guess what? That's right now. <laughs> We've never got it all figured out. Okay, so what's our goal? Our goal is helping a lost child of God, and I say lost as in, as in confused, see the better way versus winning the argument. So in doing that, I don't think it's helpful to use a bunch of jargon. I don't know what jargon is, kids. Those are called $3 words. The ones that I can say up here and I can spat them off. And you know what it'll be? Make me look real smart. It's not $3. Well, it's not $3 because there's no value because someone else may not understand them. One, it could have that emotional aspect of I hear that word, I don't know what it means, but I don't like it. That's one. Or I hear that word and it translates nothing to me. I don't know what it means. Or it's just, it's just confusing to me. All right? So let's imagine you're in a lecture hall at Georgia Tech, okay? And you're sitting in front of a professor uh, of physics, and he is giving a, a class to you know some of the about-to-graduate Georgia Tech students. And he's talking about physics, right? What are the words that he's going to use, right? They're going to be big words because his audience, they better, if they've done their study and everything, should be able to understand these very complex and sophisticated systems and everything that go into what he's talking about. There's a lot of background knowledge they have to have just to understand what he's talking about, right? Now take that same professor explaining gravity to his three-year-old grandchild. Okay? Professor talking to his three-year-old grandchild. Will he use those same words? Hopefully not. If he wants the child to understand gravity, right? He'll make it as simple as possible. He won't use big fancy words. It'll be as simple and direct as possible. Now, is it going to be as accurate as possible? No. I have to 
paint a little bit with broader strokes, but it's still true. Okay? It's a difference in having the perfect word with the utmost precision. Well, that's great if somebody understands it. But using the perfect word that doesn't communicate anything to your audience, it's a waste of a word. Right? I write differently when I'm writing for my children to read versus when I was writing uh, a brief to go to a judge in an appellate court. Right? In the appellate court system, the only people who read it are the judge and the other side's attorneys. Right? There's no jury, and so you're not writing for an individual who doesn't have legal training. So in that context, you write with very precise words because you have to communicate, this is why I have to be right, and then he has to be wrong, and it's all this background information, but it's very different than if you're writing for an individual who doesn't have all that training, right? So all, say all this is background of here's what I want to do this morning is I want to consider one way that you and I can share the gospel in a very simple, humble way to help lead or show a little sheep Look what Scripture says. Look how comforting it is. Without just absolutely overwhelming them, without making them angry because you're you know, just coming at it with a, a high and mighty attitude. Um, and I'm sure you all have had conversations about that where somebody who just knows that they're right, so right, and you really just kind of stop listening because their attitude has just shut you down. So with meekness and humility, I was talking to Brother Jerry uh, at lunch and he said, uh, old Elder Monsies gave him some advice. He said, when you're, when you're starting to tell somebody about the doctrines of grace, it's kind of like feeding chickens. Okay? He said, we've got a handful of corn. You don't take that handful of corn and just blast them right in the face. They'll scatter. You just kind of drop a piece here, drop a piece yes. there, drop a piece there. He said, before you know it, they'll be eating on top of your shoe. <laughs> I kind of got the point. I've never fed chickens like that. <laughs> but uh, that's, so that's some advice from, a, from, from an elder, from, you know, Nearly a hundred years ago, <laughs> who was a lawyer, turned out, Elder Monsey. As you can see, his name in an old school hymnal. All right, and so, so that's what I want to consider this morning. How can we take the gospel and put it in its simplest form? Okay, what is something that you and I can remember and use to open that door of conversation? Okay, and so here's what I want to use for our kind of. Our, our, our verse that it's just really going to hone in and hang on to is Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. I'll go ahead and turn to it so you can look at it. Matthew 1, 21. The context is Joseph has found out that his fiance is expecting a child. As any fiance, that would be quite distressing. Right? Under the law, committing adultery was a crime punishable by death. And he's chewing on the matter. He didn't want to make a public example of her. He didn't want to have her stoned to death. And so his, his kind of idea was, well, he just, he just kind of put her away quietly. And while he thought on these things, an angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream. Okay, So an angel appears unto Joseph, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And all that's his context. Here's your verse. And she shall bring forth a son. This is the day before sonograms. All right? <laughs> at no other point could you have a baby at this point and know it's going to be a boy. All right? So you have an angel appear and he's told one thing. She shall bring forth a son. It's a one. Two, 
thou shalt call his name Jesus. That's an instruction. You better heed it. It's a command. You shall call his name Jesus. Old Testament word for that is Joshua. You know what it means? Jehovah saves. The eternal God saves. That's his name. You shall call his name Jesus. Jehovah saves. Why? For he, just him, he shall save his people from their sins. That's the gospel. What do I believe about salvation? Well, I believe Matthew 121. I believe that Jesus Christ, God who saves, that I say that verse is absolutely literal. He shall save his people from their sins. Alright? Now know we've talked about the word shall before. When I'm writing contracts and I want the other side to do something, I don't put in a nice squishy word like, well, you may fulfill this requirement. Or you could, or even you should. The strongest word that we have in the English language that says this is going to happen is shall. You shall. It's even stronger than will. You will do it. Will will do it. You shall. He shall save his people. Now, I looked up the, uh, the grammar behind this, and this is overkill for your conversation but the grammar behind that is, a, I believe it's a indicative, an indicative mood. Okay? An indicative mood is that as far as the speaker knows, this is a simple statement of fact. Now, if I'm the speaker and it's just from me, I may believe it's a fact, and, and I, I only go so far. It depends on your speaker. Who's your speaker here? An angel sent by God says this is a fact. He shall save his people. Who's going to save his people? He. Anybody else in there? God. God. He. One and the same. He shall save his people. He has a people. That'll wake up a lot of folks. He has a people. What's he going to save them from? From their sins. I think most people, at least that we'll interact with, have a concept of what sin is. I don't think you have to start there with them. But the fact that he came and he shall save his people. It's not a question. It's not a, a hope or a wish or a might or even a wringing of hands. He might, could, ought, we sure hope he does it. He shall. He shall save his people. What do I believe about salvation? I believe that verse is absolutely true. Literal, no exceptions. Okay? It's a pretty easy one to memorize, right? That last part, right? He shall save his people from their sins. Okay? So that's that's our theme verse. That's, that's what we're hooking on to. And so how do we establish that? What is, what is a simple way to show that? And look, the Scriptures teach this. Now, you could go throughout the whole New Testament and you could pick this verse here and this verse here and this verse here and this verse here and this verse here. You could. The problem with that is it's really hard in that setting to say to them, all right, now go back and read the context and make sure that I've pulled that verse in the right way and that it matches up with everything. Right? That's a lot to ask of somebody. So what if we just condense it down to one book? 
I believe this verse right here. He shall save his people. Let's look at the book of John. Okay? Let's look at the book of John. And I'm going to go through and I'm going to point out some verses. Some simple statements. And these are going to be statements made by Jesus himself. Right? Some folks treat the red letters a little bit different than the black letters. It's all inspired by God. It's all God. It's nothing that any more inspired by Jesus speaking than not. But it's really hard to argue with Jesus, right? So let's look at just what Jesus spoke in the Gospel of John. And then after we're all done, what I want you to do is go read the whole book. And you tell me if there's anything that I did or pulled out that doesn't agree with the context around that verse. It's a lot to ask somebody to read the whole New Testament. One book, it's only like 30 pages. Right? We spend more time scrolling on our phones each day. We could read 100 pages if we, if we tried. 30 pages. So let's go. Let's go look over at John. Where would I start? I'd start with John 6. John 6. What do I believe about salvation? Well, I believe Matthew 1.21. That she shall bring forth a son. She did. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. They did. He shall save his people from their sins. He did. John chapter 6. And let's see. Let's. Y'all know the context. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but just jump back into it. He'd fed the multitude. He fed the 5,000. And now they want to make him a king because, hey, our bellies are full. This is a pretty good deal. We want, we want him to stick around. And he tells them, you're not following after me for the right reasons, right? And then he just gives them the hard lesson that, that he's the bread of life, the real bread from heaven. It's over there in John chapter 6, verse 35. It says, I'm the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I say unto you, ye also have seen me and believe not. Okay, well, here's a group of people who had been with the best preacher teacher ever seen a mighty miracle and they still didn't believe. That's interesting. right? That's interesting. You've seen me and believe not. And 37 is what we want. All, all, I like that word, all, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Alright, well let's start with giveth me. Who's he talking about? He shall save his people. Who did the Father give to him? His people. All that the Father giveth to me, they'll do what? Shall come to me. That's good. Are there exceptions in there? I can't find a one. All that the Father giveth to me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Now he's just said, all that come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Right? That's, that's the combination of them. All that the Father giveth to me shall come to me. Everyone's going to come. And it says, And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. So all his people are going to come, and not a one will be cast out. How many people do you know who live under the dangerous and sad bondage of fearing that if I do this today, if I'm on the phone with my significant other and I get in a fight with them and I say some bad things and then I hit my car into a tree, I'm going to die and go to hell because I haven't repented or, or whatever. Right? They operate under chains of bondage. I won't cast them out. We're going to get more explicit examples, but just, just starting with that, this security, this promise... All that the Father giveth to me. He came to save His people from their sins. All that the Father giveth to me shall come to me. 
And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. So his people will come, and two, he won't cast them out. For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me, and this is the Father's will. Came to his Father's will. Well, what is that? The Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, there's something given, his people, all that is given me, I should lose nothing. Y'all, is that good news? Yes! That's wonderful news. I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Is he going to lose any? No. What's he going to do? He's going to raise it up. I mean, a bodily resurrection. I shall raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him, him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Okay, well... All that the Father giveth to me are going to come to me. Well, how do I come? Go down 43, 44. Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me. That's your general rule. General rule. No man can come. There's an exception. It's a good exception. No man may come to me except the Father, which hath sent me, draw him. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. How do they come? The Father himself draws them. And will he cast you out? No. Will he raise you up at the last day? Yes. Will he lose just one? No. Much less lose multitudes. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me. Draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. Who is he talking about? He's talking about his people. He shall save his people from their sins. What do I believe? Matthew one twenty one. All that the Father giveth to me shall come to me. All that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. So John 6, 37. John 6, 44. Start with those. And then go read the rest of the context. See if I'm pulling anything out. Treating it up and distorting anything. We know that folks cherry pick and twist verses to fit whatever their preconceived notions is. Our goal is to see what Scripture says and change our notions to conform to Scripture. Okay? Go forward to chapter 8. Chapter 8. John chapter 8. Again, we're going to stick in the book of John for simplicity. Context is talking to unbelieving Jews. Verse uh, 42, Jesus said unto them, If God were your Father, ye would love me. For I proceed forth and come down from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word. Alright? So thinking about this concept of there are those that have his people, those that are going to come, that are going to be drawn by the Father, there are those who are not his people. And there's some characteristics of those is that they can't see him. They can't hear him. They cannot believe him. It's not that they will not, it's that they do not have the ability. Why do you not understand my speech? Because ye cannot hear my word. Ye cannot hear my word. And it goes on, it says, You are your father, the devil, the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe it not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? 
So we got the second characteristic I want to get to. So those that are not of his cannot hear. What about those that are his? 47 says, He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not. Why? Because ye are not of God. Well, how do you get to be of God? Well, it's his people. He's drawing you. He's calling you. He's pulling you to the Son. And if He draws you, you won't be cast out. But there are those that He won't draw. Okay? He that is with God heareth God's words, and ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Okay? I believe, Matthew one twenty one that He shall save His people from their sins. His people. Go over to uh, chapter 9. You'll see this in the context of seeing versus not seeing. John 9 and 39. For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and they which see might be made blind. Now some of the Pharisees uh, which were with him heard these words and said, Are we blind also? And Jesus said unto them, If you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin Remaineth, And so you've got the description here of those who are dead in trespasses and sins and they, and they cannot see. And yet the Father draws them and now they've got eyes where they can see. But then you've also got those who think that they can see, that think in their own self-righteousness that they're good enough. He says, y'all are still blind. You don't get it. You can't get it. If you were truly blind, you would have no sin. But now you say that we, we see, therefore your sin remaineth. Right? He shall save his people. Go over to John chapter 10. John 10, down in verse 14. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep. He knows his sheep. What's another way of describing his sheep? His people. He shall save his people. He knows his sheep. And he's known of my sheep. And I'm known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down thy life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. What's that referring to? It's referring to the difference in the Jews, naturally, and the Gentiles. This was still largely a secret at this point. It really wasn't until Paul's ministry that that mystery would be revealed plainly and on display that the Gentiles were included. Jesus' earthly ministry was largely concentrated on the natural Jews. right? And through Paul, it would be blown wide open to see that he had sheep of other fold. Now, here he's alluding to it, that there are sheep outside the fold of Jesus. And those sheep together make one fold. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, the natural Jews, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. His sheep, his people. What will they do? Hear his voice. He'll bring them all together. Right? One sheep, one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. And no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have the power to lay it down, and the power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. So John 10, you know, 14, really through 16, you get this concept of, of the sheep. Another description of his people is his sheep. And the characteristics of his sheep is that they'll hear his voice. What about those who aren't his sheep? Go over... Um, down in 25, the same book, you know, the Jews are going to say, you know, the unbelieving Jews are going to say, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? We want to know. Jesus responds, I've told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. 26, but ye believe not. 
Why? Because ye are not of my sheep. He has a people. He has a sheep. Those who are not a sheep can see all the miracles in the world. They can hear Jesus Himself teaching and they cannot believe. Why? Because they're not a sheep. As I've said unto you, what do His sheep do? His sheep hear His voice. And I know them. And what? And they follow Me. It's not just enough to passively know it. They follow, right? We talked about that in James, about faith without works is dead. There's an active going after. There's a following. It's a manifestation in our life that you can see. Well, there goes a sheep. Why? Because they're acting like a sheep following the shepherd. Right? And I give unto everybody without exception an opportunity. No. I give unto them. I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Is this group that we're talking about getting bigger or smaller? No. It's all the exact same group. His people. His sheep. They're the ones He gives eternal life to. They're the ones that are in His Father's hands. They're the ones that shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. So again, we've talked about that doctrine, or bad doctrine, of believing that the work of Christ is incomplete and that there's something that you can do to defeat it, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Y'all ever had a coupon you tried to turn in and it's expired? I really wanted that frosty, but that was an expired coupon. It had gone bad. Your salvation's not like that. It will never perish. Never. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Including yourself. You're not stronger than God. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, Father gave them to What do you give? His people. He gave them to him. My Father, which, is, which gave them me, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Now, if you're talking to this sheep, this little sheep wrapped up in chains who's fearing every day because of these doctrines, what a comfort that can give. What a security of knowing that I'm safe in the Father's hand. That the work is done by Christ and I can't perish. I can't be plucked out of His hand. Not by myself, not by anybody else, and not by Satan himself. Some people give Satan way too much credit. He's a defeated foe. He's an annoyance at best. He's a pest. Right? He's, he's like a gnat. They won't go away. But is he really going to harm you? No! Does it taste bad? When you, yeah. It's just an annoyance. Don't focus on him. Focus on the victorious Savior. My sheep hear my voice. All right? He shall save his people from their sins. Going down to uh, John 14. All right? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. This is after the, 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 the Last Supper. It's after the washing of the disciples' feet. He's kind of giving the last kind of talk to the disciples before he goes and gets arrested. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, abodes, right? Places. 
If it were not so, I would have told you. Why? Because he's God and he can't lie. I go to prepare a place for you. Not I go to prepare a big auditorium that I hope I can fill up with as many people as who will make it after me. It's a place for you individually. He knows you. He knows your name. He's always known your name. And He's gone to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. That's a good assurance. What are we doing here? We're waiting for Him to come again. That's really what we're doing. What, 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 are, you, what are you doing today? Well, I'm waiting for the Lord to come back. I'm trying to keep myself busy and occupied in His service till He comes, but really, I'm just waiting for Him to come back. That's our whole life. That's the culmination. What's the highest point of any possible life? It's seeing the clouds apart and say, here's the Lord. <laughs> All right, it's wrapped up. Let's get to the good part. This has just been the waiting room. I will go and prepare a place for you. I will come again. And what? And receive you unto myself that where I am ye may be also. He went. He went to prepare a place. He's promised he's coming back and we're going to be with him. All that the Father gives to me shall come to me and him that comes to me I will know why cast out. How are you going to come? The Father's going to draw you. Right? And none can perish. None can be removed from his hand. What do we have to fear in this world? Nothing! Seriously! There's nothing that can get you. Not in the way that really matters. Everything else is just kind of like gnat bites. Okay? He goes to prepare a place. He will return. He will receive you. This is all the words straight from Jesus' mouth. Are these words worthy of being trusted? Yeah, you better believe it! Go a little later in this chapter, down to 15, 17. If you love me, keep my commandments. Right? My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. If you love me, I profess to love the Lord. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father and He shall give you another comforter, for the Holy Ghost, that He may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. There is a people... You're described as the world who cannot receive the Holy Spirit. Who did He come to save? His people. Who are going to receive the Holy Spirit? His people. Who is not? Here's described as the world. Because it seeth Him not, because they don't have eyes, and knoweth Him not, but ye know Him, for He dwelleth with you and shall be with you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Okay? He shall save His people. Go over to chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 16 says, Ye have not chosen Me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. Who did the choosing? He did. You didn't choose Him. He chose you. And ordained you that you should go in and live any old way that you want to, just be happy, eat, drink, and be merry until one day when I come back. I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. Okay? We've been called to a high calling into His service to go forth and bear fruit, godly fruit, to His glory. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. He shall save his people from their sins. Go on down 
Well, let's just read. These things have I commanded you that you love one another. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, again, it's two different groups. You're either of the world or you're not. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But ye are not of the world. Why? Because you're his people. Why are that? Because I've chosen you. I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hateth you. Okay? Two different groups. He shall save his people from their sins. John 16 and 27. For the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God. Okay, this one, this one can confuse some people. See, it says there, I've got to love Jesus, and I've got to believe on him, and then the Father's going to love me. Well, you go read 1 John 4, 19. And I, would, I would go ahead and teach that here. Of, don't get the order confused. 1 John 4, 19 says, We love him because he first loved us. Ye love Jesus, and you believe on Jesus. That's an evidence. That's a symptom of God loving you. How do I know that God loves you? It's because you're loving Jesus. And you're loving the brethren. That's a way that I can know that He loves you, but that didn't cause Him to love you. You do that because He loves you, because otherwise you'd be drawing yourself unto Jesus. And Jesus said, you can't do that. General rule is no man can come to me. How, how did they come? The Father draws Him. Who gets the credit in that? The Father! Who's doing the saving? He, right? He shall save the people, not me. He shall save His people from their sins. Alright? Go on forward to, let's see, John 17, verses 1 through 3. This is the high priestly prayer. This is prayer to the Lord. Uh, the Lord is making in the Garden of Gethsemane um, right before He's going to be arrested. Father, the hour is come. Glorify Thy Son, that Thy Son also may glorify Thee, as Thou hast given Him power over all flesh. He should do something. What? That He should give eternal life to who? Anybody? Just kind of a, a cart. Just, you know, throw it out there, put it off the bulletin board. You just take off a little tag there and you'll be good, right? Ever do that for apartments? Somebody come rent this, right? Just, just open invitation, right? Is that what it said? No. Thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Who's that as many? His people. There is a people that have been given by the Father to the Son. That's who He's given power to give eternal life to. And what's eternal life? And this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. That's your best definition of heaven. That you get to know God. Not looking through the veil darkly, but face to face be in His presence. That's heaven. I mean, it's going to be like church, only magnified to the order of a billion. All right? So if you don't like church here below, you're really not missing out on anything. This is your taste of what it's going to be like, of worshiping the mighty God and knowing Him and being in His presence. Okay? Jump a little farther down in John 17. We'll go down to, to 9. I pray for them. Who? Those many that was given me. I pray for them. I pray not... For the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. There is a people. He has a people. 
That's who he's praying for. Who's he not praying for? The whole world. And so I take this opportunity to say, okay, when you go back and read, you're going to get to John 3.16, right? Go back to John 3.16, and you might read that and say, that that conflicts, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Okay, well, read that here with John 17. He's not praying for every single man, woman, and child who's ever existed. He's not. If He were, He'd say, I pray for everybody. But I don't. I pray for them which Thou hast given me. He shall save His people. Right? There has to be a different meaning for world than every single individual, right? Well, I would submit to you that it goes back to that description of the sheep from another fold. It's an inclusion. This term is an inclusion. It's it's not something to exclude people. Well, you can't come in. It's saying that God's fold is large. And it includes those who are not natural Jews. Because at that point, all the promises of the Old Testament, these wonderful promises for for natural blessings, you know who they were directed to? Descendants of Abraham. You didn't have any stock in that barrel. You couldn't couldn't say, well, if I do this, it wasn't directed to you. They had the living oracles that were directed towards them. But here it's saying that he loved the world. Well, the world is broader than just the nation of Israel. He could have come back and said, God so loved the nation of Israel and Abraham's natural descendants that he sent his son. And you know what that would be for all of us? A world of hurt. <laughs> There'd be no hope for us. But that's not what he says. He said, I love the world. That world is broader than the nation of Israel. All right. How do we prove this? Luke 12 and Matthew 6.31. Both of those in the context of seeking the kingdom first. One says, don't worry about all the things of this world. Because after them, do the nations of the world seek. Okay? And the other one says, don't worry about going after all these things. Because that's what the... Gentiles seek. It's synonymous. Those two are interchangeable terms to describe a category of people broader than just the natural Jews. Okay? So, going back to John 17. Alright? One chapter, one chapter over. I pray for them which thou hast given me. Again, people. All, for they are thine. God the fathers. That people, they're fathers. They're the fathers. All mine are thine. All that Jesus has, they're the Father's, right? And thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am now no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name, everybody? No. Those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. All right, let's jump down a little bit farther, um, down to... Chapter 17 and verse uh, 20. Right? Neither pray I for these alone. Right? You've got the apostles who are there. But I pray for them which also shall believe on me through their word. So he's talking explicitly to y'all. That they may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. That they may be also one in us. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, thou in me, that they may be perfect in one, and the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them, his people, as thou hast loved me. We've talked about this before, but how much does the Father love you? How much does the Father love all the people that he gave to Christ? With the same magnitude, the same order, the same... I can't even describe it, and neither can you... How big God's love is for Jesus Himself, that's the same amount of love that He has 
for you. As thou, thou hast loved them, as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, whom thou hast given me, his people, be with me where I am. Right? We just talked about that. He's going to come back. He's going to receive you. Be with him. That they may what? Behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Now, if he loves you the same way that he loves Christ, and he's been loving Christ since before the foundation of the world, how long has he been loving you? Seems pretty logical that he, he loves you since before the foundation of the world, too. Okay? Let's go over to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. It's the culmination, right? Matthew 1 21. He shall save his people from their sins. John chapter 19, verse 30 says, Jesus therefore received the vinegar, and he said, it is finished. It means completed. It means paid in full. It means that debt was wiped out. You know what I believe? I believe he literally meant that. Just like I believe Matthew one twenty one, literally the truth that he shall save his people. Right here, he did. Previous verse in 28, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished. Everything that he was supposed to do had been done. And he says, it is finished. And he bows his head and he gives up the ghost. He saved his people, which is the purpose that he came into this world. Go over to Hebrews chapter 11. We haven't gone much out of John, but this one's good. Hebrews chapter 12, rather. And we want verse 2. And we're, the context is, is seeing the compass of, of, of all this cloud of witnesses. This is all Hebrews 11. Um, you know, these heroes of faith. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which just so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. What are we doing? We're looking unto Jesus. As we're running, we're looking unto Jesus. And who is He? He is the author and finisher of our faith. Author and finisher. The completer. What was He doing? Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross despising the shame and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. So as he's there on the cross and they're getting up to it there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he sees the pain. He sees the anguish. He sees the shame. It was a thing of infamy for slaves and, and people of low regard to be put on a cross. That was just, it was insult to injury kind of execution. He disesteemed it. He said he counted out his lower guard. Why? Because he was seeing through to the other side of it for what was going to happen. What? He would have joy because he was going to be victorious. Because the purpose that he came, he shall save his people from their sins. Is he did! That's why he's able to sit down, right? All the high priests in the Old Testament, they had to keep standing. There was no furniture for sitting. I know y'all heard that hundreds of times, but there's a reason. Because their job was never done. But they were a type for him, the perfect high priest, who came and offered a sacrifice once of himself. When it was done, it was done. And he was able to sit down until the time when he fulfills his promise of coming back. Everything that he came to do, he accomplished. Do you think he would have joy looking through that if he knew that he was going to lose one? What about a thousand? Or what about a million? Or an untold multitude? He's sitting up there wringing his hands, hoping, man, I sure hope that you know little Billy gets here. I died for little Billy, but I just don't know if little Billy will do his job. And No! 
That wouldn't be joy. That would be anguish. He had joy when he sat down because the job was done. It was finished. He shall save his people from their sins. I believe that's what the angel said he was going to do before he was born. And I believe that when he died, and as evidenced by his resurrection, and where he sits now today with joy, he accomplished that. What do I believe I said about salvation? I believe that Jesus did exactly what he set out to do, which is exactly what his father sent him to do, which was to come and to deliver his people from their sins. And he wouldn't lose a one of them. And every single one of them, the father's going to draw to him, and they will come to him, and they'll hear him, and they'll believe, and they will be with him. He's going to raise them up on the last day. He says he's going to come back. He will. And you'll be with him eternally. What do I believe about salvation? I believe in a very simple gospel. The simplicity that is in Christ. And anything outside of that is chains of bondage. And y'all, I'm not trying to get you to talk anybody into heaven. You know from what we just went through, that ain't your job. You can't change anybody's final destination. But every single one of his sheep will be with him in the end. But you get to interact with a lot of people during your day. You don't know who his sheep are or not. And you don't know what chains of bondage that they're operating under, that they're carrying around, and fears that they have to endure because either they've been taught wrong or they've never been taught, or whatever the reason is. And so, do you have a job that you can be doing? Yeah. Is it hard? Not as hard as we like to imagine. Is it worthwhile? Tell me a better way to spend your time. Thank y'all for your time and attention. Done.